Jeremy here. We'll get to the sermon cast in just a second, but first we wanted to give you a quick introduction to a new podcast that we'll be releasing on the Commons Podcast Network this week. This is Between Sundays. From Commons Church and the Commons Podcast Network, this is Between Sundays, a conversation we're setting out to have about finding the sacred in the everyday. I'll be your host, Bobby Sackle. For years and years, I have been a fan of podcasts. The voices that come through podcasts have felt like the voices of friends. The stories that are conveyed have expanded my imagination. The reflections I've gathered have added so much wisdom, delight, and pure joy to my life. So guess what, you guys? I'm finally doing it. I'm bringing together some of the great loves of my life. Podcasts, conversations, explorations of the divine. Along with my friend John Petkow, we've recorded conversations with people from the Commons community and beyond to explore in this first season, the creative urge. You can look for new episodes every other week for the next couple of months. So welcome to Between Sundays. Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. So good to see you. And as Maddie said a little bit earlier, we are so glad that you are here with us. We, we really don't take it for granted that you would take some of your weekend to spend it with us as a community. And we really do hope that you find in everything that happens here today that you feel a sense of welcome. Yes, because there is always lots going on, but also because our ability to be hopeful and to be focused on advocacy in this time when elections and uncertainty and a million little things can leave us feeling like we're overwhelmed and we can feel like we're being pulled away from each other, we f- hope that you have a sense of that sort of being counteracted by being with us today. Now, for those of you I haven't met before, my name is Scott. I get to serve in this community as one of our pastors. It's one of my great joys to do that. And we are so thankful that you've leaned into our coffee break uh, as a sacred space to remind ourselves of the affection that we share and for joining us as we keep growing as a community that longs to be intellectually honest and spiritually passionate and committed to forming the world to look more like Jesus said it could be. Now, today we are going to finish this conversation that we've been having about the Sermon on the Mount, which is this sweeping talk that Matthew pictures Jesus giving out in the countryside. And I wonder how many of you can remember all the way back to the beginning. It's not a quiz. We started with the Beatitudes, where Jesus reminded us that a blessed life isn't limited to those who have agency, the strong, the competent, the morally put together in the world. And then we move to this discussion of salt and light and the reality that our capacity to add flavor and meaning to the world, there's a direct correlation in our ability to do that to the salt pans or the circumstances of our lives, just like an exotic fluid to cell we talked about. And then we turn to this command to not worry and we actually flipped it on its head, realizing that Jesus' command to not worry is not a command to not worry about those who are around us. And that actually one of the antidotes to some of our anxiety might be to actually offer our lives for those who are close. 
Then we thought a little bit more about how Jesus saw his work in the world and connected to the great law and to the tradition of the Hebrew people. And Jesus saw himself fulfilling those things, building them up, not tearing them apart. And in that, we felt invited to fight for and live for the kinds of change that we think the world needs without having to burn everything to the ground sometimes. From there, we dove into this tutorial that Jesus gives on how to pray, where like in his reference to God as father, we see that by calling God the the names and the images that God has come to hold in our experience, that this is the essence of a devout life. And then we work through several of Jesus's prescriptions. Don't be judgy, Jesus says. And in saying that, he wasn't telling us to not, or he was telling us to be kinder to each other, but he was also helping us to see that our images of God, where God is a particularly exacting judge, that that image might actually be more rooted in our character, as opposed to coming from the narrative of grace that Jesus tries to show us is more true than we realize, which brought us to last week, where Jesus' encouragement to ask and to seek and to knock seems to be more than just a cute little prescription of how we're supposed to pray, and more an invitation to let go of the skepticism and the apathy that being in the world sort of, it infects us. And we learn to trust that life might be better than we could ever imagine. And I know that that is a lot. But the truth is, we look back every week as an exercise, not in the hopes that you would be clear on the review because there's a test, no. It's meant to remind you of the gentle ways that you've been stretched these last seven weeks. Realizing that you have maybe felt part of yourself changing and shifting as we have looked long and hard at God's goodness. Where this sense of compulsion you feel now to live and to serve and to contend for others, how that always traces, it, it always traces its way back to the images of God we see in Jesus, who did more than just preach a good sermon now and again. He showed us a way to live in the world that's fulfilling, yes. He also, his way of, how his way of life renews the relationships and the communities around us. And we find ourselves participating in something far more grand and something far more transformative than we thought was possible in the normalcy of our everyday. Now, today we need to look at what scrambling and what self-awareness and what construction have in common because it turns out that Jesus actually had a couple of closing thoughts, which we will get to in just a second if you join me in a quick word of centering and prayer now. Join me. Loving God, to you our hearts are open and our desires are known today. And we ask that from all the places that we come from to this moment that you would take our joy and you would take our sorrow You would take our work and our rest. You take our effort and our resignation and help us to be aware of your nearness in it all. We ask too that you would guide us as we come again to an ancient text and we try to have a sense of what you are bringing to us in this moment and ultimately as we attempt to attend to your tender work in us, we ask this. In the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. So we have actually come to the end. 
or at least that's the way it seems. Because most biblical scholars take Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, which is where we left off last week with the golden rule, where Jesus gives his take on this ancient wisdom. That's the end of the sermon proper, most scholars think. The catch is that Jesus keeps talking in the text for a little while, which isn't to say that Jesus is like our favorite band and he sort of gets done and he says, thanks everyone, good night, and he sort of leaves the stage and then as applause would have erupted, clearly such a good sermon. He comes, he comes out for his encore. That's kind of the, pi- the picture that we get here. And that's actually maybe not so true because the truth is, is that verse 12 is the end of the sermon proper because it has a nice ring to it and it has this nice summation. But then on the other hand, we do need to take note of the fact that as chapter seven continues, Jesus is still talking, but his tone has changed. See, up to this point, Jesus has been really upbeat and positive. And now during this encore section, we're gonna look at today, he seems to shift gears and he, I won't say that he's angry Jesus, but he's offering some warnings. And in some ways it's helpful to imagine Jesus seeing the crowd starting to break up, going their separate ways, and he takes one last chance to say, look, these things I've been talking about, if you don't take them in and work with them wisely, there's gonna be some consequences for that choice. And there certainly have been those in Christian history who will take these words we're gonna look at and they read and hear Jesus as threatening his audience. But I don't think we need to hear it that way today. Jesus clearly wants the crowd to choose a life that's built on his message. A life that's probably different than the one they've got going. So let's get to the text where at first we read that Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And right off the top, it's important to note that this analogy of there being two ways or two roads or paths or two gates, in using it, Jesus is actually pulling from a long mythic tradition. First of all, the Jewish imagination had this kind of idea right at the center of it, where going all the way back to the law of Moses, the community was actually held together by this idea and image of God saying to them, look, if you follow the law, you're going to be blessed. In the city and in the country, your children and your crops and your livelihood going out and coming in, I will be with you. That's all spelled out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 28. After which Jesus says, however, if you don't follow the law, then you'll be cursed. In the city, in the fields, your children, your crops going out and coming in, it won't go well for you. And what's curious is how we actually see this motif pop up in sources around the Near East. How it p- comes to us in various myths and stories, including the tale of Heracles or Hercules. And you can kind of see an image of it here. This is an image of Hercules at the crossroads. It comes to us from Greek mythology, in which the young Greek hero is offered the choice between a life of pleasure, clearly on the right, or a life of virtue. And Actually, based on the painting, it looks more like he had a choice between wearing no clothes or wearing not nearly enough clothes, which is a totally different dilemma. (laughs) The reality is that this motif is super common with all kinds of variations, where in the ancient world, the simple life was compared to a life of luxury. 
And the active life was compared to a contemplative one. Light was compared with darkness. And of course, the way of life was compared to that of a way of death. And Jesus seems to be playing with this here where he wants his crowd and this audience to think about their choices, which is why he says, listen, so many people live in the world in a way that leads them to destruction. Don't, don't do that. Follow the narrow road that leads to the narrow gate. And I imagine that like some of his audience, some of you are asking, well, which one's the narrow one? And what's curious is that the Greek adjective for narrow here, the word stenos, it doesn't appear very often in the Christian scriptures, which makes it hard for us to decipher what the precise meaning is. What's actually far more common in the text that we have is for Christian authors to use related terms to stenos, like stenazo, which means to groan, or other verb forms that refer to someone being under pressure or someone feeling distress. And as a result, there are those who feel that Jesus is actually linking back to the Beatitudes with this reference to a narrow or a pressured or a taxing path. I don't know if you can remember, maybe in Matthew chapter five, Jesus talks about those whose spirits are broken and those who are grieving and those who lack power, those who are hungering and thirsting for justice, how God's kingdom belongs to the people who are in distress and under pressure which is an idea, if applied too simplistically, leaves us thinking that Jesus' reference to a narrow way and gate refers to little more than, if life's not hard and difficult, you're doing it wrong. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is using exaggerated language and dichotomy here. Scholar Scott McKnight refers to it as a rhetoric of clarity. And what Jesus is doing, he's exaggerating two choices in an effort to help listeners see that we do make decisions about what kind of life we live. But I wonder if this idea of there being two paths doesn't need some stretching especially because the analogy seems to imply that there are so many people on a clear path that's gonna take them where they don't wanna go. And then as listeners, we're supposed to follow the narrow way, which we don't have a map for, which is why I'd suggest that we use the imagery of wayfinding to interpret these instructions. Because it's not that the two paths motif is wrong. It's that maybe we have a tendency to think of choosing the right way and shaping our spiritual lives, like following a manicured and marked hiking trail, where I think actually that imagining life as a scramble might be more helpful. And this word scramble, for those of you who are indoorsy, it's just a climbing term or a hiking term that basically refers to an unmarked or sometimes unspecified trail that's steep enough that you're gonna have to use your hands to get up. And last summer, my wife, Darlene, and I, we did a scramble between here and Canmore. I've got some pictures there for you. And there's literally a sign at the beginning of this hike that warns you, look, beyond this trail, the trail isn't necessarily your guide. You're going to end up on exposed rock, and it's going to be loose no matter what you do. To get up, to get down, it's going to be dicey no matter what you do. And if that sign doesn't scare you, then the climb certainly does, because it's a slog. But here's the point, that often when you're on a scramble, you don't necessarily know 
There's no sign showing you when you're on the narrow path that leads you to the top and to a safe descent. You sometimes don't know if you're on the wide and the easy part of the trail that could end in a fatal slip or fall. And consequently, you have to use all your senses and you have to watch the weather and you have to keep your bearings and you have to stop regularly and catch your breath and figure out where you're going to go. And you have to make judgment calls about whether to go up that steep section or to go back down because you clearly chose the wrong way and there's some people trapped up there. Or then you have to look at your map and locate yourself. You have to sometimes rely on other hikers Sometimes you rely on those who have clearly chosen the wrong way and they're trapped on that section over there. Or sometimes you listen and you hear those who are above you in a section and you think, ah, that's the way we're supposed to go. And maybe that sounds a lot more like the spiritual life you live. And it gives you a sense of how to work with Jesus's words here. Because there certainly are paths you shouldn't take. And it's not as though Jesus isn't proposing that we follow his teaching as a way to move forward. But so often, isn't it true that it feels like there aren't signs and it feels like there aren't clear markers for us? Which is why in this life, you have to pay attention to where you are. And maybe it's best to try and work towards a better understanding of Jesus's teaching. And along the way, you find good thinkers and you find theologians and you find interpreters and you find books to help you in that. And then you also pick up the hints and the suggestions of our poets and our artists and our activists. And sometimes you take a moment or you take a weekend or you take a retreat and you rest and you gather your bearings. And also, just like in our prayer from the saints today, you learn to trust the trail reports of Christian mystics and saints who have been on this path before. And they're calling back instructions for us. And then you learn to listen for the encouragement of your friends and your community along the way. Because in doing these things, you learn to trust Jesus' assurance that you have found the way that will keep you safe and it'll lead you to life. And you will find more joy and far less fear in the journey too. Now, this image of two paths is just the first that Jesus uses. He goes directly into a second warning. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna summarize it for you. Basically, Jesus says this, be careful. There are false messengers and teachers out there and they're gonna come and they're gonna look friendly, but actually they're out to pull you back onto a path that you don't wanna be on. And we know that at least in part, Jesus is warning his audience that there would be people who would come and say things that contradicted his teaching, this sermon that he just gave. And we see the apostle Paul use these kinds of warnings as well because it was super common in the first few decades of the Christian story, in part. Because the earliest followers of Jesus were trying to distinguish themselves from the traditions around them. And as the movement grew, the early leaders of the church had to work hard to keep the ideas of Jesus and even the idea of Jesus from being co-opted by Greek philosophy and other religious groups, which is a whole lecture series on its own. So just take this with you. Jesus is warning his friends that they're gonna have to be careful with people. 
And he gives this super helpful and by today's standards, pretty clinical advice. He says, you want to know who the good people are? Look at their actions. Look at their track record. Their fruit, he calls it. Look how they treat others. Look how they handle money. Look how they act when they're under pressure. And on one hand, this seems like really good advice for the church historically to be careful about how its core message might be co-opted or damaged or lost. But on the other hand, it seems like solid advice for you and me as listeners to be watchful and consistent in evaluating those that we allow into our closest circles where we're encouraged to look for respect and affection and faithfulness to be modeled, that probably makes sense to all of us. But then Jesus warns his audience that there will be those who claim to know the divine. There's gonna be those who do divine work who are actually far from God's best. And taken one way, this sounds like Jesus was warning his friends that they were gonna run into people who were on that wide path that he just described. There are these people who would be headed in a bad direction but not aware of it. But actually, the text here is a little more nuanced than this. A closer look at the text actually shows a picture of a person who says the right things but doesn't follow the teaching of Jesus laid out in the sermon above. A person who even performs religious rites and religious rituals but does not, quote, do the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. A person who manages their religious and their moral profile quite well, but doesn't actually do what Jesus said. Which I think hints at something that we can identify with a lot more closely, which is this danger that we all face of not being honest with ourselves, which is super easy. In a time when our political system and our leaders never stop modeling a way of being in the world where the most obvious evil and the most ludicrous view, where the harm being done to the public is always seen by the, uh, it's seen in the other side, in those other people. In a time when religious leaders, traditional, progressive, whatever, so many of them are spending their time and their energy tweeting and posting and pointing at how that person over there is leading people astray or compromising Jesus' message. And these practices leave me feeling more bothered by others and angry at some version of the world out there instead of tuning in to my own patterns. Jesus does say, watch out for those who are spreading bad ideas for those who pull you from the way of life that you have discerned and fought for and come to see as following Jesus. Yes, Jesus says that. But here he also turns me inward and reminds me that it's entirely possible to be convinced I'm good, that I'm doing the right things, that I'm certainly better than those people over there, and to be misguided. And I don't... I think we need to hear this warning, or I don't think we hear it in the right way if we end up nervous that we're going to somehow suddenly find ourselves past the point of no return. No, I think we hear it well if we hear it as an encouragement to be honest with ourselves. And we do this in so many simple ways. When we take the advice of clinicians and practitioners in some key relationship we're in, or for some part of our story that needs to be unpacked. When we admit that we aren't sleeping well, we're not eating well, that we have pain in our bodies and we seek help for those things. 
The truth is, is that we step towards self-awareness by acknowledging the limits of our knowledge and our wisdom and our experience too. Every, every time we listen to a friend or a partner or an acquaintance for their advice, or we receive professional review and criticism sometimes, we receive it with openness. Or when we welcome a loved one sharing how they need more or they need better from us, hearing those things as an invitation to how we might grow and as the kind of truth that our souls actually need to expand. And listen, I know that some of you are doing this so faithfully. You carefully attend to your inner life as a way of being healthier and in the hopes that you can project and live out well. But I wanna share a tool for daily spiritual practice that I find helpful as a way to take these words of Jesus and come back to a place of honesty. I know that I've mentioned St. Ignatius in our community before. Ignatius was a 16th century monk who helped to start the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church. And then throughout his life, he helped to establish a way of practicing daily prayer called the examine. And in the first couple of steps, we're encouraged to reflect each day on how God has been present to us during the day and to review those experiences with gratitude. But then Ignatius's daily routine connects directly with the lines we see in Jesus here in Matthew 7 because he suggested that each evening, Devotees reflect on their emotional state. Take stock of how they feel and then offer those internal reflections as part of a practice of choosing one aspect of the day to articulate as prayer. Owning a mistake or naming a need or asking for grace And listen, I know that there are all kinds of ways that you can try and run with Jesus' wisdom. Ignatian prayer practice is just one alternative that you can use to work against this tendency we all have to spend our days constructing a religious life or a social life, an external life that's not based on being honest about who we are or in becoming who we know Jesus invites us to be. And if an honest and an integrated life is what you want, then rest assured that as St. Teresa of Avila contends, we come to know God as we come to know ourselves. In fact, Teresa is one of my favorites because in another place she assures us that to embrace and to engage the spiritual life, quote, we can only learn to know ourselves and then do the best that we can end quote, trusting ultimately God's great mercy to do the rest. Now, we come to the end for real. And like Jesus's sermon, this one is almost over too. And here at the end, Jesus offers a very familiar image for those of us who may have been around the church in our past. Some of you know the story of two home builders Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears or everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a person who builds their house on a rock. And in that story, Jesus describes how a storm comes and hits that house with wind and flood. And a lot like some of the old but well-built homes here in Inglewood in 2013, the house stands. And Jesus calls that first 
house builder wise. The one who takes his teachings and builds a life with them. And he, cont- he contrasts that builder with a foolish one, using the Greek adjective moros with its obvious English equivalent. He calls that person a fool, this person who builds their house on the beach sand. And we get this image of a life that collapses when the same wind and water come. And here again, Jesus ties in with this common motif in the ancient world, this idea of choosing wisely from two options, where both characters in the story are seen as being traditional in the context of wisdom building and morality and education. And there are significant hints of this kind of comparison in the Hebrew Bible and beyond, in the Psalms, in the sages of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and I have reminded you of Hercules and his moral dilemma earlier. But again, Jesus appears to be using this exaggerated dichotomy to make his point clear. And it's one in which I think we need to make a couple of notes this morning. First, that the materials each character uses to build a home, they're not described. And in this way, we're encouraged to see that we are only able to construct a life that can be described as wise by crafting a life and using the materials that we have at our disposal. And seen this way, there's actually a lot of flexibility on Jesus's part for how your life looks and the time that it takes you to build it, the way that it takes on the features of your choices and your uniqueness, while at the same time, Jesus is clear and direct in his encouragement. You want a life that survives the worst this world will bring? You wanna be wise? Then hear me and practice life like me. Which brings us to the second note, that regardless of if you choose to take up Jesus on his advice or not, you are going to face some storms. And that's hardly a revelation for most of us, I imagine, because there are probably dozens of difficult situations represented here today. We know this based on our experience, I'd say, but It's important to note that Jesus' instructions, and in fact, this whole sermon and our eight weeks in it, it isn't offered to us as a surefire way to the good life. The image Jesus gives isn't of a wise builder who is better than his foolish friend because they have a better market sense and they chose to build where there's a view. No, Jesus' point is that, look, the storm's gonna come. In fact, there's gonna be more than one. And if you want your life to keep on standing, yes, you are probably gonna take a beating and yes, you will probably emerge from the disaster and you're gonna find that you hardly recognize the place. But I promise you, my vision of a well-lived life, it's going to hold for you. It'll keep you and be there for you on the other side of whatever you face, which, I imagine is something that we all need to hear. If you've never known just what to do with Jesus, because he's hard to understand sometimes, but this vision of a well-built life, that's something that intrigues you today. Something that you think, you know what, actually I think I could move forward with that. I could scramble in my life with that. Or maybe you've been around Jesus's teaching before but you haven't been sure if these instructions he gives are a base that you can actually build with. And maybe you've tried working with some other materials and yet today you hear an invitation, come, craft a life built on me. 
a life that will keep you and shelter you wherever you go. And you're drawn to these thoughts of being honest with yourself and choosing to be wise. And then maybe you're here and you've heard and you've worked with Jesus' words, but you're in a storm. May God give you grace to trust the foundation and the strength to rebuild once the wind dies down. And the reminder that your house is part of our village. You're not alone. Let's pray. Loving God, We're present again to your mysterious work in ancient story and ancient image and the way in which it parallels the contours of our own paths. And all of us, regardless of where we sit and where we come from, we are all out on this scramble of a life. And we need you to be near to us and we need a community that helps us to find the right way. For those of us who are seeking wisdom, maybe we're having to make choices, maybe we're in particularly difficult situations, I ask that you'd give us wisdom and give us grace. First, to be honest with ourselves, and then also to seek the help that you offer and the help that a community can give. I'm grateful for the way in which you remind us that your way and your goodness are a firm place to build our lives. And I pray that you would form in each of us a trust in that very fact, giving us courage and strength to move forward in whatever we're gonna face, even in the coming moments and days. We're grateful for your teaching, for the way you modeled this. Oh, Jesus, in whom we pray now. Amen.